So the first thing I want to say is just a brief comment. Um, just I think it's just important to, to emphasize that uh, when one thinks about the ethics of contentious objection, I think it's always important to, to think about different cases, and especially cases where you think that the medical procedure in question is something that you think is intuitively morally very wrong, and a case where you think is intuitively very right, because I think sometimes people's views uh, on this topic are a bit too much determined by their views on the permissive, moral permissibility of the, of the treatments in question, but um, fortunately many of the speakers um, have given a plenty of the different sorts of examples. Okay, another question that I thought was really interesting is um, whether uh, conscientious objectors um, should actually express their views openly, and uh, I think there might be uh, several reasons for why um, they should do this, and one is perhaps because um, as conscientious objectors, they actually impose a cost uh, on society, on, on patients, and maybe it's sort of um, fair that they at least justify why they're imposing this cost on uh, patients, so they sort of have a reason to, uh, yeah, to justify um, themselves for doing that. But there might also be uh, an epistemic reason. So I was just thinking back of um, Roger Trigg's talk. Um, and um, I thought you said that uh, contentious objection should be permissible because it's important that we remain open to other people's views in medicine. They should respect these views. But of course, if we have to remain open to other people's views within medicine, um, and especially to the fact that our own views might be wrong, and then at the least they can do, or <laughs> it's very important that they also express these views so that we, um, then it doesn't remain a sort of inner private uh, voice, but that it's something we can at least um, discuss uh, openly. So I think it's important that conscientious objectors uh, express their view um, openly, also for that reason. Then um, the third point, I'm just going to make four points, um, is about um, so-called the compromise position or, or, um, or the moderate position, so the position which holds that conscientious objection is permissible only um, if, um, if, if uh, you also refer your patient to another doctor who's willing to perform the procedure or <coughs> at least inform uh, your patient about the available medical procedure. Um, and uh, I think this position is problematic, as uh, other speakers have pointed out during uh, the conference. And I'm just going to briefly try to explain why I think this is so. This position implies that there is a moral difference between um, principal wrongdoing, so doing uh, the, the wrong act yourself, killing the fetus yourself in the case of abortion. Uh, there's a moral difference between that and uh, being an accomplice, for example, by referring your patient to a doctor willing to perform the abortion. Uh, the, the, com the compromise also implies there's different degrees of complicity, say, um, you're a pharmacist objecting to uh, prescribing emergency contraceptive. Um, your objection is, grand is, is um, grounded on um, the fact that you would thereby become complicit in uh, the killing of an embryo. <coughs> But then perhaps some people might accept referring uh, a client to another pharmacist because I think that's just a lesser uh, degree of complicity in the killing of that embryo. So I think the compromise position sort of has the same well, principal wrongdoing is the worst thing, and then uh, you have all these degrees of complicity. 
And the idea is that at some point, your wrongdoing, your complicity becomes so minor, maybe because your degree of complicity is so small, that it is outweighed by competing considerations, such as uh, protecting patients' autonomy, making sure that every patient uh, receives the medical treatment they have a rise to, and so on. But then I think the problem is, perhaps, I'm not sure, um, that if you have a very um, strong objection to something, say abortion, you think abortion is murder, of course you're not going to accept uh, being so heavily complicit in, in murder because this sort of complicity will consider that very wrong as well. If abortion is murder, referring uh, your client to another murderer is going to be uh, impermissible um, as well. So you can't accept the compromise position. But then I think, well, if you are in a position where um, you think the principal wrongdoing is, is wrong, certain medical therapy, but you are willing to refer your patient to another person uh, who's willing to do the procedure, then perhaps that says something about how strong your initial objection is to the med medical procedure. Maybe then your objection is not so strong if you don't make this big moral difference between um, if you think it's all right to refer your patient to someone else, we'll give the treatment, but you don't want to do it. Perhaps your objection is um, not all that strong, and perhaps that means that it doesn't qualify as a proper contentious objection, as some people may understand it, as some sort of deep uh, belief that is uh, required to, to preserve your sense of identity, or some deep inner voice, some deep intuition, um, and so on. So I think, um, that's the problem for the compromise position. And then, um, very briefly, the last uh, point, I thought it was interesting to sort of think a bit more about um, uh, the role of, of sort of incentivizing um, uh, doctors to, to uh, do certain procedures and penalizing uh, conjectures objectives. Um, so if you think about um, incentivizing, I mentioned this here in the Q&A when I thought about um, abortion centers or abortion clinics. So I don't really see what the problem is um, with um, trying to set up abortion clinics in countries where there's a lot of uh, where there are a lot of conscientious objectives, say to abortion, and yeah, Italy is the is probably the best example. And yeah, I think why shouldn't it be up? to the government to sort of provide incentives for doctors to uh, work in these abortion uh, centers um, in Belgium and I guess in many other countries too when there are jobs that are not um, that many people don't, don't want to do. We provide incentives, we provide free courses uh, for people to learn um, the, the, the <coughs> things that you, the skills that you need for the job um, and we might um, have higher wages and so on. So, so is there a, a difference? Um, I, I would like to ask. Same with penalizing uh, doctors who are conscientious objectors. Um, so we think perhaps that is justified, or, or I think perhaps that's justified, justified because they impose this cost on society, on, on patients. And some people have compared it um, with army service and doing alternative service, so I think that was actually a, a good comparison. But uh, even inside medicine, um, I think we already do similar things. So um, apparently in New Zealand, 
Um, if you, if as a doctor you want to work in an attractive area, a fun area, a nice area, a safe area, although it isn't everything is a safe area, I guess, but, um, then um, you are expected to first go um, and work for a couple of years in rural areas. So you do have to do something in, in return if you, if you if, if your preference is to work in, in, a, in an attractive area, and apparently in Australia, I think, um, doctors are paid to go in rural areas um, if, if they want to work in, a, in cities, say, because in rural areas there's not many doctors, of course, um, so by choosing to work in a, in a city, they actually impose a cost on the rural areas, but they're expected to do something in return and work in these rural areas. So, so yeah, I'm just giving these examples to sort of um, ask the question, what is so problematic with penalizing contentious um, objectors in, in medicine? Okay, well thanks, Katrin. Maybe we'll take a couple of questions before <coughs> moving on to the uh, next set of reflections. So any questions for Katrin? Steve Clark. Um, yeah, so this is something I've been puzzling about through uh, the whole conference about referral. Um, I mean, there's sort of, there might be two different problems. One problem is um, that someone else is going to perform the act that you think is wrong. And the other is that you yourself are going and finding that person or recommending them. Now, if you're just worried about the second thing, it looks like there should be a, a pretty easy fix to this that we can run administratively rather than you yourself directly referring. You just report to some kind of central agency that, no, I can't do it. Now, presumably you're going to have to tell someone that you can't morally conduct an abortion, so that shouldn't be an imposition. And then they do the referral. Yes. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm not saying that there's no practical fixes uh, to this problem, because I was thinking something similar with some central registration yes. system where the doctor doesn't even have to say anything himself, the patient just calls to the, the central system and asks, is this doctor prepared to do this or not? Something like that. Right. Um, so I think there might be practical fixes and that would be the simplest. But of course, I mean, if you really think abortion is murder, then the, the sort of complicity that you have in the murder has to be quite, I mean, the degree has to be very low probably for these people to be outweighed by the competing reasons, say, protection of the autonomy of the patient. But uh, yeah, but I, I okay, yeah, yeah. Um, it's just on the point Steve, Steve made. I think that that might just run into the same objection. I, I might not be referring them to the doctor, but I'm referring to it's just compli complicity of yet another remove. And I think if you, I think what you're saying is just going to end up into this infinite kind of regressive, no matter well, how involved I am. Well, the, your thought is that you are going to have to report to somebody that you are refusing to conduct yeah. the, uh, the abortion. So whomever that is, so if you have to do this anyway, um, that person can either do the referral or pass the information on to someone else who does the referral. So you're not doing anything additional. I think you made still the claim that's still be made. I think the claim is made. Yeah, sorry. Sorry. I think it might also depend on how wrong you think the wrongdoing is. So in cases of abortion, people won't accept low degrees of complicity, perhaps. But if it's something they consider not as wrong as abortion, maybe they will accept sort of a more system like you suggest. And, yeah. Okay, we've got um, two last questions before we need to move on. Mark, I think you were next, and we have to go back. Yeah, just a point. Oh, sorry. 
Oh, did you say me first? Or? I think you had your hand up first. Okay. Um, just a response, Steve. Uh, there is a case in the U.S., uh, the Little Sisters of the Poor uh, object to providing uh, contraception, and a <clears throat> compromise that was worked out after a uh, Supreme Court case, a Hobby Lobby case, um, by the government was, and under the Affordable Care Act, um, uh, all preventive services have to be provided uh, under insurance, and that includes contraception. So there were a number of groups who were opposed uh, to provide it in their health in their health insurance plans. There's one group called the Little Sisters of the Poor. Uh, all they had to do was exactly what you suggested: just report to the U.S. government, federal government, that they didn't want their insurance policy or any uh, any other mechanism to provide contraception, uh, and they objected to just reporting that to the government. And that's now going to go before the Supreme Court as to whether or not they can be required even to report it to the federal government. Well, I hope they lose. Okay, so we have one last point. Just a very recent case in England, <coughs> two midwives who had conscientious objections to managing, uh, they've been midwives for years, to managing an abortion clinic that had been they placed in their hospital. Um, and they said that by managing it, they would be too complicit in something yeah. they had uh, <coughs> objection to. That was actually thrown out by the court. Aren't they? they won on appeal, but then they lost the Supreme Court. And I just think it's interesting that in that case, it was said, no, no, managing is, is not seriously cooperating in any fundamental way. But when it comes to war crimes and when it comes to all these kinds of things, you know, people judge very harshly uh, people who are even slightly involved in, in, in bad practices. So it seems to be a double standard. Yes, I Okay, so we should move on to our second commentator, Richard Sarabji. <coughs> I can go ahead. Yes, yeah. it's all yours. Uh, I've got a tremendous amount out of this uh, conference. And very interesting because I didn't know the medical side. Uh, but I think conference has very direct uh, consequences, very direct implications. Uh, now, looking at the history of the idea of conscience, which started uh, being analyzed by the Greeks, uh, I see that it started off in the first 600 years as meaning uh, a belief um, that <coughs> what you had done or what you might do would be wrong. <coughs> that was the basic idea. There was absolutely nothing in those first 100 years about an inner voice, uh, let alone God's inner voice, <coughs> uh, including St. Paul, nowhere there. At first, God didn't even have a role at all in the 6th and 5th centuries in the Greek accounts of conscience. Uh, soon, God began to get various roles, but certainly not that of an inner voice. The inner voice came from a very unexpected direction after the first 600 years. It came from Platonists who liked Plato's account of Socrates as having a demigod with a voice. Uh, this demigod would warn Socrates uh, not to do various things, not always moral things. Sometimes it was whether to stay where he was or, or, to, or to leave. Um, but this was the first time when something, not actually a god, but a demigod, uh, uh, was described as a voice, an inner voice, and uh, Eventually, that may have influenced Christians, 
But uh, I haven't read it in Christianity uh, uh, up to uh, the 6th century AD uh, when, when uh, the second Platonist did it. The first Platonist was about 2nd century AD, the second Platonist was about 6th century AD. It came from Socrates. Uh, uh, the equation of Socrates' demigod's voice with conscience, it was not mainstream at all. Uh, now, the second point uh, uh, about conscience is that the idea that a bad conscience split you in two was there at the very beginning, but in a way which I think almost nobody did, understood. I found it understood by one person. I did eventually find two other people who'd, who'd understood it. It was all to do with the meaning of the word con. Uh, most people have thought that it meant this was something shared, con in Latin meaning shared. <coughs> uh, uh, conscience was always based on some shared view. It, it isn't even true. Uh, sometimes consciences uh, uh, take a very unusual direction. Uh, but that wasn't the meaning of shared. I won't explain the real meaning. If I take 20 minutes, I would. I won't intend it. Uh, but uh, <coughs> is that it was declared fallible. And that was the standard Christian view. It was the view of the first Christian writer about conscience and Paul, that his conscience was fallible, the Corinthians' conscience was fallible. It's very much discussed by Thomas Aquinas. It seems to be a widely agreed principle that conscience is infallible in Christianity. Uh, sorry, it is not infallible, it's fallible. It's also widely agreed in Christianity that conscience is not the source of moral knowledge. It's not the source of moral knowledge. It is the application of your moral knowledge to the particular case. Uh, that is so in, in the 500 years of the Greeks. That is so in St. Paul. That is so in Thomas Aquinas. Uh, that is so very much throughout. It seems to be, I don't say that in two and a half thousand years there are no deviations, and deviations may be all right if they don't cause confusion. But that is very regularly the case. It's about the particular application of your knowledge. It's not the source of knowledge. Uh, uh, now, my third book. Um, although bad um, uh, uh, conscience was said to split your integrity, at the very, very beginning, uh, in the very meaning of the word, uh, uh, the Greek version of con, which is sure, sounds a bit similar. But the very word sure implied a split. <coughs> Nonetheless, that is not a good reason for not violating people's uh, consciences. Uh, the fact that it splits their feeling of integrity. Because this is very variable among different people. Uh, some people's integrity is very easily split. Some people's integrity is rather uh, hard to split. It's uh, more, more duck, the water off a duck's back. So it's very variable. And so you shouldn't treat people, uh, uh, <coughs> uh, avoid treating people's conscience according to whether their integrity is very much split, because then you'll be treating them very variably. And exactly the same is true about the strength of their feeling. Both their strength of their feeling at the time before they do the act that I'm unwilling to do, 
and how badly they would feel afterwards. This also is extremely variable. It depends on all sorts of things. Some people react to having done what they feel is wrong by thinking, well, I may be somehow. Other people think they're damned forever. It's extremely variable. Uh, th that does not form uh, the reason, or should not form the reason, why we are reluctant to uh, make people violate their conscience. Um, I think it's impossible, or I, have, I haven't succeeded in finding a better reason than saying the reason why it, it, it's not a good thing, if you can avoid it, to force people to go against their conscience is because that's forcing them to do what they think is wrong by the very original definition of the term. If that isn't clear to you, it's not helpful to go to a side effect of them feeling wrong, like they'll feel very bad, or they will to some extent be split, perhaps a large extent, perhaps a small extent. These are side effects of them thinking it wrong. The centerpiece is that they think it wrong. That should be clear enough. That's the reason why, not that you should never violate the conscience, but you should hesitate to violate their conscience. Uh, now, some of the very interesting examples we've had uh, were presented uh, in a way in which you might think that in many of our cases we had conscience on one side and some other moral judgment on the other. There were some very rare cases in our two days of discussion where conscience wasn't relevant, and conscience is not always going to be relevant to these medical decisions, not always. But in many of the cases discussed, uh, it seemed to me that conscience in what I regard as the core sense of conscience, uh, the belief that something was morally wrong for you to do, uh, was in play on both sides. If we take the very interesting examples uh, given by Dominic about uh, um, um, conscientious non-objection, uh, uh, bringing yourself not to object to switching off the life support, well, I think there's conscience on both sides, in my sense of conscience, which is the most useful one, I think. Because variants like God's voice, when they're brought in, who knows which side God's on? He might take either side, but none of us actually knows. Whereas in the original sense of conscience, original for centuries, and very, very influential right up to today, uh, there was conscience on both sides in that example, and similarly in the example uh, that we were given by Alberto of not wanting to send a patient back to the refugee camp, but also not wanting to block beds by uh, and refusing to admit people who needed treatment next. Well, conscience was on both sides, in the core sense of conscience. As for God's voice, who knows which side God was on? Uh, it's best. That's a not, a, not a very helpful concept of conscience. Uh, and there was one more example. I, I think Hugh Lafollette was uh, uh, talking about how, in his view, we should usually override our conscience. But the reasons that he gave why we might be advised to override our conscience are brought in conscience on the other side. I think in most of our cases, it was conscience versus conscience. If you take what I regard as having been the, the core view of conscience, of course, there are variations, some of them I think very unhelpful, leading to dogmatism in the case of people who think they have the voice of God. And I nearly there was uh, it's just one more point. These cases I've just mentioned, which were so interestingly brought up in our discussions, 
where, in my view, conscience is on both sides. These cases show it's perfectly possible for you to be wrong whichever way you go. Now, that's a very important finding, which was extremely obvious to the Greeks. The famous example uh, on the cover of my book, actually, Orestes. Uh, Greek molarity uh, put him in a very difficult position. His mother had murdered his father. So Greek molarity required him to avenge his father. He was obliged to uh, avenge his father by murdering his mother. Both were absolutely wrong. Uh, the Greeks understood that. They had no hesitation. They tell it fascinatingly. The Christians didn't want to acknowledge that. Uh, and Pope Gregory the Great, who was a very great thinker, but an early one, what was he, 7th century? Yeah. I probably got that wrong. <laughs> but early, um, he tried to say, yes, there are these cases where you, you're wrong whichever way you go, but it's always your fault that you got into that situation. Well, he gives three rather telling and amusing examples in which it was your fault you got into a situation where now whatever you did was wrong. But by the 12th century, 13th century, with some of the greatest Christian thinkers of all, uh, Abelard, Bonaventure, most of all Thomas Aquinas, it was perfectly clear to them that you were sometimes in a position where whichever way you acted, you were doing wrong, uh, and there was no avoiding it. It wasn't, it wasn't your fault. Uh, cases uh, Thomas Aquinas brought up of erroneous conscience, because he's in the tradition, the standard tradition, where your conscience may be wrong. If your conscience is in error through no fault of yours, through no negligence, or, or anything of that kind, then you may get into the, situ the situation where whatever you do is wrong. We've had these situations coming up and up and up again and again in, in, in our two weeks. So uh, it's not, again, it's not conscience just on one side. Uh, the person whom I mentioned I think in discussion, and I find an absolutely wonderful philosopher and moralist, uh, Mahatma Gandhi, was terribly good about this, even on his favorite subject of, of nonviolence. Uh, he uh, celebrated, and I will end with this story, he celebrated, he congratulated the municipal council for shooting 60 dogs that might be rabid because they were stray. Hindus uh, wrote to Gandhi from all over India, absolutely horrified, he thought you believed in nonviolence. And he had to think through a series of seven uh, articles, which are very hard to get hold of. They're not in collective works. And his thought, I think, was absolutely brilliant. He decided that violence was always wrong, uh, unless it was for the sake of the kill, as with euthanasia. A violence against sentient beings, always wrong. So wasn't he up the creek? Because he'd just been congratulating people for exercising violence. He said, look here, these general principles, like uh, violence is always wrong, that's absolutely true, but it doesn't necessarily tell you how to act. Because something else may be even more wrong. Now suppose that you have undertaken to sit on the municipal council, then you have taken a vow and you've made yourself responsible for the safety of the citizens. That doesn't apply to other people who haven't sat on a municipal council and aren't going to talk to an ordinary householder, but if you sit on a municipal council, then you've undertaken an overriding obligation to protect the municipality from rabies, among many other things. So now, although you're in the wrong uh, for killing a sentient being, which is absolutely wrong, it'll be even worse if after your undertaking you don't protect the public from rabies. 
So he was very good on this situation, how we're often uh, in, in a morally impossible situation where whatever we do is wrong, but one thing is clearly much wronger than the other. So he's a subtle philosopher. This was something the Stoics were very good at too. Uh, the Christians much more hesitant, but they did in the end recognize it. Stop. Okay, thank you. <laughs> questions for Richard? Walter. Uh, you suggested that what's bad or wrong about violating somebody else's conscience is that they're going to end up doing so, or forcing them to act against their conscience, is that they're going to have to do something wrong. But I don't see why that applies in the case where their conscience is clearly wrong and even unreasonable. I mean, if they think that it's wrong to let their daughter marry somebody of a different race, uh, and then they're not going to give their blessing, and you force them against their will, I mean, what's bad about that if they're so far off base? Well, I think it's impossible to operate on your principle, uh, because this is something very frequently spoken about in connection with freedom of religion, even in the very early days and right up to today, <coughs> that everybody thinks, well, of course my conscience is right and his conscience is absurd. Everybody thinks that. Uh, but, of course, how are you going to decide this? Uh, it, it's just saying, well, I'll favor my opinion. That's what it comes down to. Walter, do you want to no. respond no. to about the relativity of uh, reasons? No, I'm, just, I'm, I'm trying to figure out what's wrong about making somebody else go against their uh, conscience. And I think it's you know side effects, but you seem to think that there's something intrinsically bad about it. Now, the epistemic problem of knowing who's right in those cases is different than the evaluative problem of what's bad about I do, think it's very, I do think it's very bad for someone uh, to have to go against their conscience. It would be bad for any one of us. Uh, but that's not because of a, a side effects like how badly we feel or, 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 or whether or not our integrity is broken up. Uh, but really, I was not addressing that so much as I was addressing your principle that uh, sometimes you can see that somebody else's conscience is absurd. <coughs> But then everybody thinks that, so I, I don't think that's a good reason. What, what I'm addressing is, is the reason you were giving, that sometimes I can be absolutely sure the other fellow's opinion is absurd. Yes, but it's not good to make moral decisions on that sort of basis, because it's universal that you so do you think something is absurd. Do you think I'm never justified in believing that somebody else's view is absurd? Uh, yes, yes, and I, I, I often agree with you, I'm quite sure. But I don't think that's a good principle for deciding uh, how to treat people, because it's a reciprocal view that your uh, moral opinion is absurd. So it's not a good way of making a decision. Uh, if, if he has you over a barrel, and you'll say, and of course, because your opinion is absurd, of course, uh, I shall violate your conscience with, without mothering. That's no way of settling the issue. I'm thinking it's not, it's not a way of settling how to treat people. Yeah, well, I, I disagree. I think sometimes uh -huh. their views are absurd and ought to be recognized as absurd. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Yep. I'm just going to follow up on that. I mean, if, if you are dealing with somebody whose views are genuinely absurd, I mean, <coughs> what are the odds that they're going to abide by this principle of not trying to enforce their view when they've got you over the barrel? Again, I very much like Mahatma Gandhi 
I happen to be speaking about him last night, so perhaps it's too much on my brain. I, I very much like Mahatma Gandhi's whole attitude to this thing, that even with people whose, whose views you, you do think absurd, and, and often I would agree with Gandhi they were, still an enormous amount is to be gained. I don't say you can do this in a medical context where you've got to act quickly, but an enormous amount is being gained by talking with them. Gradually you see. Uh, you, he doesn't want you to agree. He doesn't want you to be converted. That's not his reason for dialogue. Eventually you begin to understand their position. You don't agree with it one jot more. He, he's against converting from your religion to take the case of religion. I know that's not what we're talking about. No, the value of dialogue is that you stop feeling they're so ghastly because you see that wrong as they are, you, you see how they manage to think that without being such worm-like specimens, although you totally disagree with them still, and that all helps to a better world. So I now, I know there isn't time in medicine to have these long conversations, so I agree it's completely impractical in medicine. We, we should, we've got two more questions here, we should move on. Uh, I think Steve is next, and then... Uh... Um, yeah, so this is about in voices again. So, I, in, in my presentation, I've tried to take this pretty seriously, because I think that when people introspect, they often seem to uh, find an inner voice. And I'm thinking, say, of the famous passages in Twain's Huckleberry Finn, where uh, uh, Huckleberry Finn's conscience speaks to him and it uh, tells him various things. And when people look inside themselves, that seems to be how they understand it. Now, um, I'm getting the sense that you don't like this story, but I'm struggling to f understand why. All I got was that. It's a Platonist story rather than a Christian story. <laughs> um, uh, so I'd just like to hear more about what you think's wrong with it. I think there are two kinds of things. Uh, one is that it leads to tremendous dogmatism. Uh, if you think God is, if it, you think it's God's voice. Yes, well, that, that's a sub-variant of it, though, right? So, uh, that, that's, a that's the one I really object to. Right. Um, There are other things that I object to. I mean, one is that people are very varied in whether they hear voices. And you notice, of course, you know, it's a, it's a medical defect. Um, this is one of the many functions in which our brains have to distinguish between other and separate. <coughs> mm. It happens with motion, doesn't it? You've got to distinguish whether the ball is approaching you or whether you're approaching the ball. You've also got to distinguish as to whether the thought in your head is coming from you or coming from another. Some people, probably Joan of Arc, people say, uh, just had defective brain function, and that accounts for why some people hear voices. I happen never, misguided as I am sure, I, as I know I am, uh, I, I happen never to hear voices. This is extremely valuable. I don't think anything is added uh, to the value of your thought. Uh, in fact, uh, if you're the sort of person who hears voices, either because your brain doesn't function well or for any other reason. I don't think that adds to the value of it, but you may feel it adds to the value, especially if you think it's God's voice. Then you get dogmatism, unreasonableness. Even a reasonable person uh, suddenly becomes unreasonable if they think God's spoken. So those are my chief reasons against it. It's variable. It's if it's God, it's dogmatic. Oh, I, think I'm I'm last slide, I think we can move on from the voices, uh, Dr. Charles. <laughs> Yes, yeah, yeah, I mean, partly to answer, answer a, 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 a question about absurd, absurd over opinions. 
in, in relation to, to, to uh, conscience. So you, you talked about conscience going back to the Greeks. So that's conscience rather than conscience <coughs> subjection. Sorry, uh, sorry. Yes, yes, yes. So yes, conscience yes. subjection seems, seems actually not an ancient thing, but a very modern thing. Um, uh, a very modern discussion, very modern notion. And certainly, I think, in, in the Catholic tradition, it's partly due to more acceptance of diversity, uh, and particularly religious diversity, and contrast with a medieval view in which error had no rights. So the medieval view is there's no freedom of belief, there's freedom to believe true things. But there's no freedom to believe what you want to believe. There's only freedom to believe true things. And I think that the move from error has no rights to uh, uh, allowing people to make mistakes uh, is, is, is by and large an example of moral progress and one should be very cautious about, about returning to error has no rights. Uh -huh. I did agree with the first little bit because although there wasn't a name conscientious objection to very late, I think Socrates, for example, gives us uh, an example. When his friends said that we can help him to escape from prison and so on, he produced what we nowadays would call a conscientious objection. He, he wouldn't leave prison, he would stay and be executed. I think it's a phenomenon that people were very, very interested in, and they didn't happen to have a name for it. All right, well, we can pursue this uh, in the final discussion. I think at this point we should move on to our third speaker, Jeff McMahon. Well, I noticed uh, over the conference that uh, a number of the speakers here were generally opposed to or objected to conscientious objection by doctors. Indeed, Don Wilkinson argued that those who comply with demands that are made on them as doctors, uh, in spite of their moral scruples, are actually moral exemplars. I think a, a, a cynical part of the explanation for this might be that many of the practices that uh, some doctors object to are ones that most of the people in this room find permissible. For example, abortion, provision of contraception, assistance in dying, that kind of thing. Though it's worth noting that there are exceptions. Uh, Alberto mentioned one, uh, participation in executions. Another might be participation in torture. Alberto said, well, these aren't actually people acting in their medical roles uh, when they do this. I, I, I think they actually are, that it is uh, a function of a doctor to prevent somebody from uh, suffering unnecessarily. Well, that's what doctors uh, may do in participating in executions. And it's also part of the job of a doctor to prevent somebody from dying when they don't want to die. And that's one of the things that doctors do when they're participating in torture. So there are, I think, medical roles that uh, most of us in this room, or indeed probably all of us, would, would uh, object to and think that doctors, when called upon to engage in these practices, ought to refuse. Now, what strikes me, and this, this uh, won't surprise you given my background, my recent background in working on the ethics of war, is that I think most people in this room would probably have a different view about conscientious objection by soldiers. I mean, we wouldn't say that a soldier, or well, see what you think. I wouldn't want to say that a soldier who fights contrary to his conscience, that is, in a war that he sincerely believes to be unjust, is a moral exemplar. 
And that, I think, would be particularly true when the war is, in fact, unjust. So suppose a Nazi soldier who has joined the German army prior to the accession of the Nazi party uh, is commanded to, to fight in the Second World War, rightly believes that uh, Nazi invasion of Poland or Czechoslovakia or wherever uh, is unjust and refuses uh, to in engage in it. We would, I think, applaud such a person. We wouldn't regard him as a moral exemplar if he said, well, it's what all my, my colleagues are doing. They must be right. Uh, I should just go ahead and do it. So what struck me from the conference today is this uh, tension between what I think are many people's views here about conscientious objection in the practice of medicine and conscientious objection by soldiers in war. What are the differences? Well, over the course of the day today, I, I thought of three possibilities while I was listening to the talks. Uh, one is, and I think this was suggested in part by something that perhaps Dom said, I can't remember who, in medicine, many of the acts that doctors object to doing are acts that affect only the patient and are acts to which the patient consents or are acts which the patient actually requests. And I think uh, even if one has scruples about engaging in an action, one should think of those scruples as being mitigated by the consent of the only person who will be affected by one's action. So I'm thinking now there are a range of uh, cases of this sort where doctors might object conscientiously to acting, um, assisting somebody to die, uh, supplying contraception, accepting someone's refusal of a blood transfusion or some form of beneficial, objectively truly beneficial therapy, amputation uh, of, of a perfectly healthy limb because of some aberrant psychological state of the patient and so on. Uh, there we can see that going ahead and acting in, in spite of one's scruples may well be uh, perfectly permissible. But acts of war harm people, and harm people often by killing them without their consent. Uh, and this seems to me a much more serious form of wrongdoing if in fact the killing is wrong, if in fact the war is unjust and the people who are being killed are uh, people who are not morally liable to be killed. So that would be one, one way of explaining the difference. There's consent on the part of the only possible victims in many cases in medicine. There's not consent on the part of the, uh, the, the victims in war who are very often, even when they are in soldiers, uh, innocent in what I think of as the relevant sense. Now again, a word of caution here, there are many cases in medicine in which uh, a doctor's act will affect not only the patient, but will indirectly affect and possibly harm other individuals. And I have to say, uh, abortion is one of those cases. I actually happen to believe that in the case of 99% of all abortions, there is no other individual who's uh, uh, harmfully affected, but that depends on a controversial metaphysical thesis. 
there are also cases in which parents refuse uh, certain surgeries for their infants. Uh, Tom's case of uh, 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 doctors who, who might uh, refuse to provide um, uh, treatment for sexual dysfunction in sex offenders and so on. These are all instances in medicine that may harmfully affect people other than the patient who consents. And those cases, I do think, raise the same kind of issues that may come up in, in war. So it's, it's good to be aware of that. A second to what I take to be fact is that uh, conscientious objection is more likely to be correct in the case of war. And the reason I think that is this. Um, soldiers, as history shows, are very, very strongly psychologically disposed to believe that whatever war they're uh, commanded to fight in is in fact a just war. It's very difficult to get people to believe, particularly professional soldiers, that their own country and their commanders are ordering them to, to, to go kill innocent people. And what that means is that when somebody conscientiously objects to participation in a war, the explanation for that is more likely to be that the war is in fact unjust, since it's so unlikely that people are going to do this. I mean, you just look at the history of war and you'll find confirmation of that fact. Now, on the other hand, in the case of conscientious objection in medicine, a great many of the scruples that doctors have have their source in sectarian, religious, or metaphysical views that are much less likely to be true, much more controversial. So I'm thinking now about case in which, cases in which doctors object to participating in certain procedures because of their beliefs about the moral status of embryos, because of their beliefs about contraception, because of their beliefs about <coughs> sex in general. A lot, of, a lot of times, in a lot of occasions, the, their, their views are ones that are coming from uh, uh, highly particular sectarian beliefs that are not widely shared. And that's, that's a reason for thinking that in general, conscientious objection in war is more likely to be right, by which I mean the conscientious objectors are more likely to be correct in thinking that participation in the war would be seriously morally wrong <coughs> than doctors are uh, likely to be right in thinking that their participation in some medical procedure is likely to be seriously morally wrong. Finally, and I think this just follows from the other two explanations that I've given and may not be much of an addition to those uh, other explanations, is that uh, precisely because in medicine there's very often consent on the part of the people who are affected and also in, because in the case of war, instances of conscientious objection, particularly mass conscientious objection, are more likely to be correct the effects of conscientious objection in war are actually likely to be good, whereas the effects of conscientious objection in medicine are likely to be, on balance, bad. And I, I should just say that in the case of war, I say that because it's just extremely unlikely that there will ever be a sufficient number of people who conscientiously object to participation in a war that is in fact a just war to impede the effective fighting of the just war. 
So that whenever there's significant, substantial conscientious objection in war, as I said before, the explanation for this is most likely going to be that the war is in fact unjust. And therefore, the effect of this conscientious objection really is going to be to impede the uh, progress in the fighting of an unjust war. And I don't think anything comparable can be said about most cases of conscientious objection in medicine for the reasons that I gave earlier. Thanks. ask you one quick question about this third criterion, which seems to me to be wrong. Huh. So you say uh, conscientious objectors are more likely to be right in the case of war. I think that might apply if you're talking about people who are already enlisted as soldiers, subsequently conscientiously objecting. But if you're talking about people who are conscientiously objecting about going to war in the first place, clearly they're going to be much more self-interested because they stand to be killed if they end up going to war, whereas a doctor who performs an abortion against his, his conscience is, is not going to die. So I, I can't see how you would expect people to be conscientiously objecting to going to war are going to be more reliable trackers of the justice of the war. I mean, they could just be very selfish. Or not even very selfish, just <laughs> prudent. Well, you have to take account of uh, the ways in which soldiers who are volunteers think about what they're doing prior to enlistment. They think that they're, many of them in any case, uh, join because they think that they're going to be doing something that <coughs> is good and just and important. They're going to be defending innocent people and so on. And then they are in, in, in certain ways indoctrinated or socialized within the military, with the military code of honor and so on. And they're also going to be subject to peer pressure from <coughs> colleagues uh, and that kind of thing, not to, to refuse for cowardly or well, self-interested reasons. When, when people talk about conscientious objection, typically they mean people who say, I'm not going to Vietnam, you know, I conscientiously object. That's they're not already enlisted, they're not indoctrinated, they just say, for example, Wayne Lynch, the famous Australian surfer, uh, was hiding out for several years to go surfing because he didn't want to go, go to war. Now, I don't, you know, I, I think that's perfectly fine, but I don't think you can track from his behaviour that, that his objection you know, was telling us about the justice of the Vietnam War. Well, he just didn't want to go to war. And Muhammad Ali said, I'm not going to shoot no yellow man who's done nothing wrong to me. I mean, he, he, uh, he just had a, a personal... I don't see that sort of tracks the sort of justice of the... Well, you, I, you, you may uh, have missed that when I was giving my remarks, I was distinguishing between soldiers and doctors, not between civilians who might be conscripted. So I do think you're right that if we think of conscientious objection on the part of conscripts, um, you, your point has more force. Yeah, I, I think that's uh, you know, it's clearly true. On the other hand, even in the case of conscripts, if you think that there is a war that is in fact a, a, a just war, and there is conscription for that just war, in some cases, I think people won't be highly motivated to avoid service. 
uh, when they recognize that the war is just, and that's going to be that's going to be true in all cases of national self-defensive war. It's when when the soldiers are already threatened as I mean the people are already threatened as civilians. Now, if on the other hand it's a just war of humanitarian intervention somewhere, so let's suppose there there is a just war, but it's other people who are under threat, and people are people in another in, in another society are being conscripted to go fight on behalf of other innocent people in the war is just, then I do think you will find a lot of resistance on self-interested grounds. But that's the kind of case that very rarely occurs. That is, states don't engage in conscription of their own populations to go fight just humanitarian wars elsewhere. They fight them with all volunteer professional armies, but not with conscripts. Roger. Following on from this, I mean, your description of conscientious objection by the part on the part of serving soldiers <coughs> seems to be something that most people would violently object to, both inside the army and outside. I mean, for me, conscientious objection about war is pacifists who say killing is wrong. But if you enlist uh, as a soldier, you sign up to a whole host of military discipline, and it's not your place anymore to decide what a war, whether a war is just or not. That that's got to be left to the wider community and to the government, I'm afraid, that you're there to, to serve and, and you're going to be court-martialed if you don't. And I think most people would say there is no room for conscience in a serving soldier. I mean, back to the issue of a role that you're playing. Once you enter into that role, that's part of the deal. Yeah, um, I appreciate that that's currently common sense thinking, but I, I do disagree with that. Uh, I think that when soldiers join the army, they really can't, as moral agents, say to themselves that what they're doing now is making themselves into instruments or tools of, for killing people, no matter whether the killing is going to be just or unjust. I just don't see that a person can, can uh, do that as a moral agent. And in fact, I think you'd be surprised uh, to find how much sympathy there is for the idea of principal conscientious objection by active duty military personnel among certain officers anyway. We've got in the back of the room here Richard Shonovan who teaches at uh, West Point who will confirm that uh, several of his teaching uh, colleagues who have been serving officers in the U.S. Army have actually published material uh, uh, defending the right of conscientious objection by active duty service members. I'm thinking of Brian O'Neill and Chris Case, at least, and and and, and there there are many others. But you yeah. So this is not an idea that is alien within the military services now. I, I mean, obviously, there could be extreme cases where they're called called to fire on civilian population or something where they might say, look, I didn't enter the army to do this. But if they're going to say, I'm not going to go to Syria, I'm not going to bond Syria, or well, it's my judgment, I don't care what the government says. I mean, you've signed up to something, I'm afraid you're, you're landed with it. Yeah, I just don't see how you could... Uh, I, I, well, I, that's the way it works. You could, I don't think a country could way run and have an army if it can't rely on it when it needs it. Oh, I think it can run an army if it is able to rely on the army when it, 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 its wars are just. So take the case of Israel, for example. A conscientious objection in the IDF is rife. Um, but that's because everybody, and, and it's not much 
punished. And the reason is that everybody knows that if there really is a defensive war that they need to fight, everybody will fight. But there's a huge amount of conscientious objection among active duty soldiers in the IDF. Many of them refuse to, to, to serve in the occupied territories. In the siege of Beirut, many refused to cross the Litani River and so on. And there were, most of these people were hardly punished at all. Uh, I've got two questions and then Marks, I think you were next. Just a very quick sidebar. Just, um, yeah, I mean, if you accept the principle of most people, even the common sense view, so-called, uh, that uh, you can conscientiously object to acts of war, particular acts of war, why on earth can't you conscientiously object to an unjust war? I think actually Jeff's work on this is very good. <laughs> you've, got one, you've got one supporter. It's just an empirical point on the military front uh, to run military where soldiers could effectively conscientiously object. Um, a colleague of mine is from New Zealand, and New Zealand military doctrine largely because it's such a small military force. Each individual soldier is has a, a, a professional duty to conscientiously object to any order that they consider, and it's very well protected, <coughs> and the, the freedom to do so is very, very well protected as well. So, and it, it's a smaller military, it's less prone to going overseas for dragons to slay, but they do have a military which is structured on this individual model of, no, that I can't do that, but um, an expectation that they will. So. I like. Oh, yep. um, suppose we agree with you, uh, Jeff, that it's more likely that soldiers um, who object are likely to be right in terms of uh, it being an unjust war. Uh, I'm just wondering what follows from that uh, for conscientious objection in medicine? I mean, if, if, let's say we agree. They're more likely to be right. And doctors, we can't say the same thing. But now what follows from that in terms of any kind of uh, way we treat conscious conscientious objection in medicine. I think my own view is that we should have much more liberal provisions for conscientious objection in military organizations than in medical organizations. Okay, but yeah. not not none, just less liberal. You, not known in medicine. In yes. Okay, so um, I've been hopeless and we've run out of time. So unfortunately, we're not going to be able to have the broader panel. Uh, and if, sorry, it's, I'm really weak at organising these things. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I think it, 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 because people from the United States generally like things more and they can recognise other people from the United States, I might get the three US speakers. So, so Mark... Walter and Hugh, just to come up and line up here. And then Aaron. Uh, and Aaron, yeah, 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 Aaron, come up to you. US people are not interested in Canadians. No, but come up here. Um, and, and we'll have one question for each speaker. Uh, so think of one thing you've been burning to ask that individual, and it's only one question per speaker. And uh, people can't ask. More than one question. Have I become an honorary Brit? No, you're an American. <laughs> you stay up here. Just let's leave. That'll do. Where's that? Yeah. So, so uh, where's Aaron gone? Aaron's right, right there. Right. You, you, you better come up too. Okay. So, 
Who's got a Who's got a question for Hugh on conscientious objection? Yeah, David. Yep. Oh, sure. Can I ask uh, well, any of the panel really? But do you think that professional integrity uh, is of any um, relevance here? I mean, you heard about like a code of honour for soldiers, but um, for me as a doctor, professional integrity is sort of part, in fact, a very, very big part of what I would see as moral integrity, my, my duty to the patient. And, and, I, and obviously I'm a bit with Dom that I would feel that I have to often um, let what I think is the right thing to do or what's going to be good for me to be overridden by what the, what's going to be good for the patient. So, Professional integrity. Okay, can you say something? You can say something. I think Mark might have something to say on integrity. Yeah, we go on. Okay. Uh, uh, I forgot what I was going to say, but uh, it had had something to do with this. One is, I don't think there's really anything to integrity apart from getting it right. That is, if, 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 if you've got some morally erroneous view, say it's objectively morally erroneous, but you believe it, um, at least in this way, I don't think anyone else has any reason to respect your integrity, given that, it in, that, that its maintenance requires your acting on an erroneous moral <coughs> view. Um, and similarly, uh, if you if, again, if you think that what you're morally required to do is what's best for the patient, that may just well be the correct moral view. Mm -hmm. Okay. Any other takers on integrity? Well, professional integrity can also be invoked as a reason to object uh, to do something. Uh, Somebody mentioned the example of an amputation of a healthy leg. So that's when <clears throat> one can evoke the notion of professional integrity that we just don't do that. Uh, and I suspect even some, some of the physicians in, in, in uh, the cases that Dominic um, uh, discussed uh, might rightly or wrongly um, invoke some notion of at least their conception of professional integrity. And I think that's where we get into some hot water where different people can have different conceptions of what is and is not consistent with the professional norms of a particular discipline. Yeah, Walter, last uh, point on this. I was just going to say people's duties of professional integrity depend in part on the profession. Uh, and as a member of the professoriate, you know, the academic profession, there are a lot of things that are really bad about the norms that are very common in our profession. And I don't feel like I have any obligation whatsoever to follow those simply because they happen to be the common norms in our profession. Instead, I'll do what's the right thing to do uh, and not simply follow what happens to be common. Uh, any other questions for the panel, for Hugh uh, or Aaron? Yeah, Alberta? So I have a question for everybody, so very quick. No, we can't get them all to answer. <laughs> no. The question is, would you allow a Muslim doctor to object to inspecting a patient of the opposite sex or a patient intoxicated by alcohol, and why? So 
whether yes or not apply. That was for anyone who has an answer. Educational choice? So it was doctoral. Oh, oh, yeah. To object to the inspection? Yeah. I would, I would allow a Muslim doctor to object as long as, long as there was adequate uh, provision for services, you know, from people of the same sex. Uh, I mean, if if there's not adequate provision for somebody for people of the same sex, then you know we've got to do something about it. But I don't see why uh, you would create you know such a difficult situation for both the doctor and the patient. Why you would force that uh, if there's a better solution? All right, I'm going to ask you each to answer one, just a, or two simple questions, but just in a line or two. And I want to know. Um, what you think conscience is and what you think a valid conscientious objection is. Uh, so... Sorry, that ended. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you what I think. I, I think conscience is just the belief about what you've got good reason to do. And a valid conscientious objection is just where there is good reason to do what you believe you ought to do. So that's my answer. Hugh, what's yours? I, actually, I was going to ask you whether you were looking for a particular or a general description? No, just an answer to the sort of school uh, person who's no, watching I'm, I'm, what's, what's conscience and what's a value. I'm say, uh, as are you, that conscience, if it's to be a meaningful term at all, simply has to be shorthand for what I take uh, the act for which I have the best reasons uh, to follow. So and I, what's I, a I valid conscientious objection? Um... Where I think, albeit perhaps wrongly, uh, but where I think, and I think I have good reasons for believing that my acting in the way that my profession, profession requires is wrong. Right. I, and sufficiently wrong that I'm willing to take the consequences. Jeff, what is conscience and what's valid conscientious objection? Conscience is a person's sense that she ought to act on the basis of what she believes is morally permissible, required, or impermissible. And uh, a valid instance of con two valid instances of conscientious objection are when a person refuses to act in a way that she rightly believes would be impermissible and when she uh, uh, insists <coughs> uh, against other demands on her to act in a way which she believes she's morally required and she's in fact correct about that she is morally required to do. Good, and Richard, you've written a book on conscience. So <laughs> just a short answer. <laughs> uh, but, but first question is what I think is easy to say. It's, uh, it's um, a belief about what I think um, was wrong, but what's relevant to us is, or what would be wrong for us to do. Now, the, the question, what's valid, I think is not always terribly useful, because not always terribly decidable. It's decidable in cases where, where, where somebody puts forward an irrelevant consideration or, 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 or a clearly trivial situation. But on the whole, we haven't been discussing that. We've been typically discussing people with very different views from us 
a Muslim view about certain things. It, may, it means nothing to us, these views. But you would have to understand the whole society and tradition to, to get a feel of why, uh, of how it could seem valid. Uh, I, I don't say you'd, you'd agree with it once you understood that, but then you would see that it was actually valid given that background, which is no more unreasonable than your background. But that's a huge task, so I think it's awfully difficult to decide whether it's valid. All right, good. Uh, Mark? I pretty much agree with um, Jeff's uh, characterization of conscience, uh, but I disagree with his um, uh, criterion for a valid. Uh, conscientious objection. Um, and let me stipulate first that when I say valid conscientious objection, I don't mean that it necessarily has to be accommodated or respected. All I mean is that it has uh, considerable moral weight to at least give it consideration along with other uh, factors like the impact on patients, the impact on other healthcare professionals. So for me, what makes it valid um, and I know you disagree about this, but has to do with the um, whether it is a core um, moral belief uh, that is associated with one's conception of the type of moral agent one is. So it would be a very um, uh, a, a very great harm to that person to have to do something that's contrary uh, to those beliefs. And that would be then, I would say, that's a valid conscientious objection. But again, with the caveat, it doesn't mean it has to be accommodated. Walter, you're second last. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm going along with conscience is just a belief about what we have, you know, reasons to do uh, or not to do. And uh, <coughs> conscientious objection is valid when we're right and we have the most reason to do it. But, but then I think the important question is how do we react? to people who engage in what they take to be valid conscientious objection when we think it's not valid. And the question is, do we tolerate it? Do we accommodate it? You know, how do we react to it? Uh, and that's where it seems to me uh, the difficulties occur. Um, and, and that's going to depend in part. Do you think you can be objectively right about that? Do you, what? do you think you can be objectively right about that? Yes. Could you give us an example? When we're objectively right about it, yeah. about a person not being justified in engaging in conscientious objection when somebody, say, refuses to give uh, fertility treatment to a couple because it's an interracial yeah. couple. I mean, I just think that's ridiculous and, and we should not uh, allow them to refuse on that basis. you want to come in on this one? Because you've got one. Uh, the, no, after you finish. You, want, you didn't want to go first, but now you're going to go last. Definition of conscience. So I think that we use the word in different ways and that which sense we want to go with is going to depend on our purposes. So I think sometimes we use the word conscience to refer to something like an all things objection. And I think that that's often the sense that we're talking about when we're talking about um, conscience objections, especially something like military service. But I think we also use the term in terms of like, uh, so more along the lines of a kind of inner voice. And I don't think it's literally an inner voice so much as it is a kind of nagging feeling, a kind of vague sense that something I'm doing just doesn't feel like right. it. You know, sort of feeling in your gut. And I think that we also use conscience to describe that sort of thing. I'm perfectly fine to use the word conscience for both. I think we just have to be careful about which one's the right one for our purposes and make sure that we're defining it. Um, <coughs> what counts as a valid conscience objection? I mean, 
So it depends what you what you mean by valid. So which conscience which conscientious objection should be allowed? I think is a different question from which ones I think are sort of morally objectionable. So I mean I guess what Walter and I have said in our papers, look, there's many conscientious objections that we think are invalid in the sense of being morally objectionable. So the case of somebody who refuses to serve um, a couple of other <coughs> lesbians, I would say it's invalid in that sense. I think that's incredibly morally objectionable. But it's a, it's a separate question of whether it should be legally allowed, whether it should be allowable within the framework of, um, of <coughs> medical ethics. And there, I think it, it really depend on, well, some sense, what, what are the consequences? What are the consequences of allowing it? What are the consequences of not allowing it? And if the consequences of allowing it turn out to be all things considered better than the consequences of not allowing it, then let's allow it. So here you had one. Yeah, I, I just would like to comment on, I mean, because I do think it's an important consideration. Marx's uh, notion that it needs to be a core value. Uh, I, part of me is very comfortable with that. My, my concern is that most of the instances of conscientious objection, at least in this country, I don't think, in fact, reflect people's core values. Uh, let me just give you an example. I, I do have a very close friend who is opposed to abortion. He's also opposed to capital punishment. He's opposed to war. He is, he is genuinely pro-life. And for him, it, his general opposition to taking life includes fetuses. You know, I want to say, if he is a doctor, does not want to perform abortions, I'd be inclined to accommodate it. But most of the people who are claiming an accommodation, I, I don't want to do an abortion, I don't want to, to help someone in their life prematurely, will be more than happy to engage in war, will be more than happy to support capital punishment, will be more than happy to let people starve in the street, and so I, I want to say, I'm sorry, that's not a core value. Uh, core value is determined not by the claim that it's a core value, it's determined by how you live. All right, well on that note, uh, we've overrun by 15 minutes, but uh, please join me in thanking all the panel and all the uh, speakers. Steve wants to say some things. <laughs> Just some very... Uh, general things. Um, so um, the first thing is to thank Alberto Jubilini who's done the heavy lifting of organising this event. Um, so thank you. Um, but um, also we need to and would like to thank um, Miriam uh, and Rachel for uh, their sterling efforts behind the scenes, um, and also the Australian Research Council. You want to put that up on YouTube, who uh, generously funded uh, this event, as well as the uh, Oxford Youth Hero Centre. So uh, thank you. Again.